Episode 87, the year in review, the top three aha moments of 2019. My name is Dan Mason. In 2012, I was overweight, getting divorced, battling depression, and feeling trapped in a career where I was successful, but bored and unfulfilled. And it's actually the greatest gift I've ever been given. I used my pain as a springboard to discover my life's purpose. Now, I want to share the same tools and strategies which help transform my life with you. So you can live Life Amplified. Hello and happy holidays. Wherever you're listening from in the world, it is such an honor to serve you. Thank you for being part of this community. And thank you for another year of support on the podcast. Everybody sharing these episodes on social media, passing them along with your friends and family. I am so excited to deliver another year of value to you in 2020 and really just want to take a moment to acknowledge really what this particular week is all about. Now, you've listened to the podcast, you know I'm not an overtly religious guy in the sense that I don't really identify with one denomination or faith, but I am very spiritual and I'm very open to the metaphorical lessons that exist in many of the world's religious traditions this time of year. Uh, you know, my for my Jewish friends who uh, just began celebrating Hanukkah last night, at least at the time that I'm taping this podcast, there is such a beautiful metaphor when we think about the wicks that miraculously burned for eight days when there was only enough sacred oil to fuel those wicks for one night. Hanukkah for me is just about abundance. It's about realizing that we can quickly move from a space of not enough to more than enough in our life. And how many times over the past year, maybe over the course of your lifetime, have those thoughts of lack and scarcity gotten in the way of you taking action toward those bucket list things that you swore that you were going to do. You know, learning the new language, writing the new book, starting your side hustle, leaving the career. We always say, well, there's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough opportunity. In many instances, we believe that we're not enough, that we're lacking in some way. And I think Hanukkah is such a, a powerful lesson that you can take what you have right now and make that sustainable and make it last. And that there's an unlimited amount of abundance in the universe that we can tap into when we consciously put ourselves in the flow of life. Also, you know, in the Christian tradition, you know, when you think about the story of Jesus, who was born into poverty in a stable, who came from nothing, and yet the impact he went to make in the world, it's a reminder that the divine arrives in humble packages and that wherever it is that you came from, you can have small beginnings in your life and still go on to lead a huge life and make a big impact. So many people get caught up in believing that their biography is their destiny or because they didn't come from a wealthy family that they'll never achieve wealth or perhaps, you know, because they're not the most educated or have the most degrees or certifications that they can't go out and share a message or share their gifts with the world. And, you know, that's one of the big things I just want to remind you of right now is wherever you're at right now, you have gifts, you have a story within you that could make a massive impact on somebody else's life if you allowed it to be fully seen and if you allowed the world to truly experience 
all of you in 2020. So many people just hiding in isolation, living in those stories of lack and scarcity. And I believe that this is the week that is about miracles and possibility. And I hope some of the clips that we share with you from our top three most listened to episodes of 2019 are a powerful inspiration and maybe a launch pad to reset your mindset so that you can truly step in to an amplified life with more freedom, more meaning, more money and fulfillment in the coming year. So let's begin our year-end countdown with the top three episodes, starting with my dear friend Sarah Riley, who has been on the podcast twice this year, and her appearance all the way back in April is what spurred a tremendous friendship and a beautiful business partnership with her and I. As you know, if you've listened to the podcast, we have started a brand new group coaching program together called Wavelength, where you've got access to two high-level mentors in this beautiful, supportive community. In fact, we just began some of the bonus calls for our early signups this week. And so beautiful to see people showing up and supporting each other and coming out of isolation. We had so many breakthroughs on our Move Through Your Purpose Masterclass where the responses from people were that, oh my God, I feel like I finally found my tribe. And one other person, you know, was listening to a story from somebody who was getting laser coached and said, I feel like I'm listening to my long lost sister. It's been really beautiful that Sarah and I can provide that container. And what I love about Sarah is that she really goes deep into the neuroscience and the neuro-linguistic programming part of just rewiring our brain for success. And one of the conversations we had back in April was the difference between our soul versus our biology. If you have ever been in that head versus heart battle about, you know, knowing that there's something more you want to do, but also rationalizing all the ways that it can't happen and allowing your monkey mind to keep you stuck. Sarah had so much to offer on that conversation back in April. We're going to play you a clip right now. So I like to refer to it as soul versus biology, because at your core, your soul, like the essence of who you are, however you want to describe it, he or she wants to do everything. They want to travel the world, publish the novel, meet all the people, have all the relationships, experience all the feels, and do the full spectrum of the human experience. But that is encased in a body that is biologically wired for survival, and so it seeks safety through familiarity all the time, and it starts learning so early on, right? Because humans are interrelationally dependent for their whole lives, but they're really, really interrelationally dependent for at least the first, you know, 10 to 15 years. Some of us up until our 30s, depending on the type of person, (laughs) how we were raised, right? So because we recognize our primary caregivers as the source of shelter and food and human connection, right, we're, we're set up to learn very quickly, you know, like, you know, when you're playing a video game and you have the little life bar in the top right hand corner. And every time you take a hit, every time you run through the nitro box, every time you fall in the river, every time the crocodile snaps at you, the little life bar goes down. This is an analogy that I like to think of in the fact that human nervous systems can only take so many hits, right? We can die of stress. We can die of isolation. We can die of heartbreak, right? So if you consider that the system knows it only has a limited amount of hits, it's going to be very motivated to learn super fast. So when you're a kid and you perceive some kind of pain, like say you're three or four years old and you try to hug someone and they don't want to be around you or they yell at you unexpectedly, your nervous system takes that hit of disappointment, rejection, abandonment, fear, you know, separation, whatever. And it says, well, what does this mean? What do I have to learn to make sure I never get that hit again? 
And so it will learn things that are you specific because you haven't developed empathy yet. So you can't intellectually reason what's going on with that other person. It will learn things like I can't express love in this direction. I can't get my hopes up. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't whatever. It's not safe for me to do whatever. And any good psychologist will say it's not the trauma. It's the coping mechanism, right? Because the problem isn't that someone was mean to you when you were four. The problem is how you learn to be in response to that. Mm. So if your system learns, well, I can't do this, then it's going to learn that, bury it, put a couple of scabs worth of coping mechanisms on top of it, formulate a bunch of beliefs that support you keeping it, and it builds this elaborate structure to make sure that you don't mess with the programming because messing with the programming is certain death. And this is why when we start talking to people about, okay, but why do you do that? They might feel triggered. They might feel upset. They might feel defensive. It's the nervous system protecting its old programming. So if people really want to make massive change, they have to be prepared for a certain amount of discomfort in the process because the system is going to fight back. And I, you know, I don't like to get super dramatic, but everything fights when it's dying and all egoic deaths usually come with a bit of nausea and a bit of panic and a bit of defensiveness, right? Yeah, and I think that this is such an important point that you're hitting on because you know the human brain, from what we've learned in science, doesn't really develop the capacity for analytical reasoning until after the age of 10. And so many of these messages from childhood are just burned in and imprinted. It's like we build this hardware system of beliefs that we just assume are truth because at three to five, seven years old, you had no idea how to distinguish what's real and what's not. But on some level, Sarah, is it just that when we make these decisions about what's possible for our life, about the love that we believe is available to us and what we need to do to get that love, isn't it almost like, you know, we can be fully grown adults, but have a seven-year-old running part of our life in, that, in those moments? Yeah, 100%. Because the system doesn't self-audit or self-update, right? From a survival perspective, if you see your dad get eaten by a tiger when you're five, your system's going to record the message that tigers are bad, stay well away from them, right? And then if someone comes up to you in later life, and says tigers are the cutest kitties you should head boot them at every opportunity you're gonna have cognitive dissonance around that you're gonna be like this person's a moron right 100 you will feel that but the problem is now into the 2000s in 2019 most of us were born in 60s 70s 80s 90s right what we learned wasn't about tigers it was about whether it's safe to be in a relationship whether it's safe to build connection whether it's safe to be our truest authentic self and because the system doesn't self-audit or self-update yeah to a certain extent you're going to have a traumatized four-year-old running your business if you don't get in there and make those changes because once the system has recorded that meaning it thinks that meaning is intimately linked to you staying alive so it buries it within a scotoma, a psychological blind spot, and then layers up the coping mechanisms and all the beliefs on top of it. So yeah, 100%, you're right. Like sometimes we have a scared seven-year-old or a scared 10-year-old running our business. I think based on the readings that I've done around when they start getting good test results out of kids for empathy using like flip cards and stuff like that, the earliest we typically register empathy, depending on who we are, obviously allowing for bio-individuality, is around seven years old. And based on what I've read, again, they, they're not even looking to diagnose you with delayed empathy until you get past 12. So there's an easy decade there where you are a sponge for inaccurate data. And because the system doesn't self-audit and self-update, if you don't you know, work with someone and do that work in your adult years, then you are basically applying a bunch of coping mechanisms that you used to navigate and survive primary school, 
or I think we call it elementary school in the US, and you're trying to apply that to your adult relationships and your adult business. And I mean, you know, we can guess how well that's going to go. And when you refer to things like coping mechanisms, you know, I think a lot of times in the mental health world or in coaching and therapy, you know, the things like addiction get a lot of play. You know, coping strategies can be alcohol, it can be drugs, it can be gambling, sex. But there's other more subtle coping mechanisms that keep us stuck as well. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to that, because a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I'm very well adjusted. I don't need to cope. I I don't drink a drop of alcohol. But yeah. they've been procrastinating okay. on taking action for 12 years. <laughs> you know? Oh, now you're speaking my language. In fact, I did a coaching call this morning where we identified a primary coping mechanism of apathy. This person is incredibly healthy, makes great money, loves their career, works out every morning, journals, sees a coach, is doing everything right until we start looking at, okay, so let's move into the next phase of your dreams. And we start talking about the fact that this person is incapable of daydreaming. And I'm like, well, isn't that interesting, given that daydreaming is, you know, a phenomenal way to activate emotional content for manifestation. So let's go into that. And then we find out that, you know, based on stuff that happened when this person was like three or four years old, their primary coping mechanism is apathy because the underlying survival meaning is there isn't any point in getting excited about or invested in what you want because even if you get it it'll be taken away immediately Mm -hmm. so yes while addiction and all of that fun stuff gets most of the airtime and most of the drama and all the excited stuff to be honest based on like who i've coached over the last few years i would say apathy is probably just as damaging because if you can't emotionally engage in what you want you can't bring it into this reality Love Sarah Riley. So honored and privileged, uh, A, just to have her friendship and to be in the middle of doing the Wavelength Mastermind with her, which doesn't even officially begin, by the way, until January 8th. If you would love to work with us both and have two mentors in your corner to achieve your success in the coming year, you can go and get all the information and apply at wavelengthmastermind.com. By the way, Sarah and I are also going to be doing a complimentary online masterclass called Think, Act, and Be Amplified in 2020, where we're going to help you uh, identify and overcome some of those patterns that have kept you stuck in sabotage. You can get a link to that complimentary training in the show notes today. Let's move on to our number two most listened episode of the year. Stefan Lovegrove was back. Uh, and if you followed any of Stefan's work or heard him on the podcast, you know, a lot of it is about abundance mindset. And a lot of it is how we relate to money. One of the biggest things I, I see and hear from people that keeps them stuck is, oh, you know, I can't invest in my dream. I can't invest in myself. I have to wait until the money's out there, but yet so many times shame and guilt about financial decisions of the past are what keep us stuck and just perpetuating the same lack mindset into the future. In this clip, Stefan talks about guilt and shame around money and just in life and how it is not a useful emotion. The majority of people calling in there was an energy of guilt or shame created about, well, you should never have gotten into that much student debt. Well, you should never have bought those things. Well, you should never have made those decisions. All I know from a coaching perspective is if we begin from that place energetically, it's not going to end well. You know, I always quote Elizabeth Gilbert as saying, guilt is the ego's way of making us think we're making progress when we're really not. 
there's a lot of people, and this is a light bulb for millions of people today. There's a lot of people who believe if they guilt, shame, and punish themselves enough for their past decisions with money, they'll get to a better space with money. And unfortunately, I have to tell you, it never works. Oh, one more time. If you guilt or shame yourself enough for your past decisions, that somehow you're going to get to the other side and be in a better place. That's what so many people believe. And all it does is perpetuate more of the shame cycle, right? Right. Well, so here's the tricky thing about guilt. And somebody's listening to this for money, but this is actually a revelation about guilt that goes far beyond this one area. Anytime you buy into guilt, guilt operates at the level of cause. And we know the law of cause and effect is always in motion. We know cause and effect is always at play. And we are at the level of cause in our lives, as you've heard Dan talk about. So if we institute guilt and buy into guilt at the level of cause, the effect it always carries with it is punishment. And so the problem is, if you believe that you're guilty when it comes to money, you must end up punishing yourself. And that's the cycle you're going to stay in. And that's true for guilt in any area, including relationships, including career, including sex, including anything. When you buy into guilt, someone has to be punished and you end up punishing yourself. So it's it's a very toxic pattern to get in with our money. The way this would play out in reality, because I've heard this story so many times, the people who went and got that master's degree and they took out loans thinking that the master's degree was either going to make them feel enough or help them advance in their career. And it didn't get the desired results, but then they shame themselves and beat themselves up. Oh, now I have all this debt and it keeps them in that low vibration where, you know, it just keeps them focused at the level of the problem. Right. And actually, I'm glad you're bringing up debt. This is one of the most practical things I think we can address today. When it comes to debt, if you view debt like a prison, as so many people have been taught to do, you can't move forward. And not only can you not move forward, it's like you won't give yourself permission to be in joy. Right. There's a lot of people who don't think they can relax and rest and enjoy their life because I I'm in this prison of debt and I need to get free from it before I can X, Y, Z. That is such an unhelpful paradigm. And I always want people to know the real story for me is that I started my business with over thirty thousand dollars of medical related debt. And I never let it stop me. And I never let it be a prison. And eventually it got paid off because I generated more income and changed my financial situation. But I really believe I would still be carrying every penny of that debt to this day if I viewed it as a prison and paused my life until I could resolve. So much wisdom in the shortest clip that we're going to share with you today. And that's pretty much the value that Stefan delivers year round if you follow him online. So much respect for him. But one of the things I've been writing about, if you are a member of my mailing list, which, by the way, you can sign up for free training sent to your inbox each week at creativesoulcoaching.net, I believe one of the highest signs of an abundance mindset is a willingness to release our money, not on the things that don't move our life forward. There are plenty of people, yes, we run up the credit cards on clothes or handbags or vacations or things that don't really serve us, but being 
being able to release our money, A, just in a spirit of giving to other people or in ways that truly will help us elevate, you know, an investment in yourself or your business or your dream. Because as you're willing to let go of money, you're signaling to the universe that you are also willing to receive it, that you trust that there is a natural ebb and flow. And as money goes out into the world, it will be multiplied and that energy will return to you. And a lot of times when we're scared or afraid to let go of money, whether it be as a gift or an investment, it's also because we believe that there's a limited amount that we can receive in return, which is scarcity thinking. So you are giving and releasing money to the extent that you believe that you're able to receive it. And that becomes the deep mindset work for you to truly experience amplified abundance in the coming year. Definitely would recommend going back and listening to that episode with Stefan from January 21st of this year in its entirety. So many breakthroughs around the money conversation that are waiting to be had. And that brings us to our number one most downloaded episode of the year, which was from Mandy Morris. She is the author of the book, Love, It's How I Manifest. And I I just knew that Mandy was my kind of person because she is very spiritual. She talks about manifesting. She keeps a foot in the woo-woo, but she is also so grounded in the science behind it. If you're anything like me, you want to step out in faith and believe that all these things are possible, but it's really nice to have like the neuroscience aspect to validate it or to give it a stamp of approval. And Mandy in her episode gave so many nuggets of wisdom. But what we talked about were five steps on how you can raise your vibration and truly be your authentic self in the world. And in this clip, Mandy talks about taking inventory of our lives to see what about us isn't really us. How many of our beliefs genuinely are things that we've created or are they things we were conditioned to believe? Were they hand-me-downs from family members who didn't know better? In this clip, she's going to tell us how to take inventory of that and how to begin to rewrite the story so that we can move beyond it. So a lot of this is this concept I call it, and it's what about you is not you. For some folks, they're like, what does that even mean? Because most people think, well, I'm me. Of course I'm me. My thoughts are my own. And this goes back into childhood programming. And this isn't to blame mom and dad or get to shame our traumas or our experiences in the past. But it's just, again, so that we can see where we create worldviews from. For example, I had a client who had been through a very traumatic experience when she was five. And because it was so traumatizing and the way that her brain wired itself in that moment and basically created a worldview around, it ran her entire life after that. So it literally takes one situation. doesn't always have to be highly traumatic either. Sometimes it's something small that just gets more concrete over time. But when you think about what about you is not you, you're picking apart why am I the way that I am? Like what parts, going back to number two, what parts feel like they come from fear? What parts of me and my thought patterns of my beliefs of my actions feel like they come from, you know, something more love-based and are they even mine? Did I acquire them from mom, from dad, from that trauma when I was seven, from that time when my friend rejected me, you know, and we realized that, oh, these aren't so authentic. These were just based on the external or the association that I made with them. And the reason this is important is not so much that you can sit here and point fingers at everybody or everything, but it's more so to say, these are not completely true. And it kind of strips them of their power. 
and the ability to kind of remove them from yourself instead of it being a part of your identity, you can pull it outside of yourself and look at it and say, oh, this is just what I was taught, which means I picked it up, which means I can put it back down. Uh, yeah, I love that because there are so many people who just sort of take on these beliefs from childhood as their identity. I'm sure you hear this where people are like, oh, Mandy, you know, I'm not courageous like those other people or, you know, I'm <laughs> risk averse. We develop these stories that really aren't the case. You were swinging across monkey bars in the air and jumping off, you know, the top of your treehouse when you were a kid. But it's what is the moment where you made that decision? decision, it's unsafe. And and I think if people can really step away from it and get clear, it's such a game changer in remembering who they are and who they were actually raised to be, which are two right. different things. Right. Because it really goes back to that human story, which kind of jumping um, the gun here on the fourth step is like this concept of what I call love's eyes. And it's removing the human story. And I call it love's eyes. Some people might call it, you know, universe, higher self, God, Allah, Timbuktu, whatever feels right to them. But it's really seeing things through that elevated space of do I need to be connected to this in the same way? Is this story really the only truthful story? What is actually true, which is not what we see just out of our own eyes. It's how do we see it from all angles? How do we see the multiple perceptions and perspectives on this this reality that we create for ourselves? Something like, well, I'm just unworthy of love, or I just, I have to work hard in order to make a lot of money, which was totally my belief. And when you pull it apart, you're like, is that true? Is that true all the time? Is there someone that I may have acquired this from? What's my story about that? And is it total BS? And then you, you elevate into that kind of bird's eye view seeing things for what they are. And then again, you can do that whole set it down. You picked it up so you can set it down. But what do I want to pick up now? Who do I want to see as my worldview moving forward? What models can I choose that have acquired this in the way that feels most light to me versus this is just how I'm programmed to achieve what I want in life? Is this the step out of the five that people struggle the most with? Because when I hear you talk about this, like seeing things from all angles, looking at things through love's eyes, it also probably requires a level of forgiveness. I know yes. that that's always <laughs> the hardest for, for people. But what is the role of forgiveness when you talk about stepping out and looking at this through love's eyes? Well, so all humans won't do something unless it some way removes their pain or brings them pleasure. We're, we're actually quite simplistically wired in that way. So I call them perceived rewards. So anytime where it's something like we need to give forgiveness and maybe it was a really messed up thing that happened to us and it's understandably hard to forgive the person, you're not really looking at maybe you really remove the whole need to forgive in the first place. Instead, it's you seeing things as they truly are. Maybe it is that you bring compassion in and you understand how maybe if there's a person Person involved, how messed up that person was, or how they did the best that they could, or they loved you in the way that they were capable of in that moment. But really, all you need to do, and this really goes back to assuming responsibility for ourselves, is how do we perceive the world? So it's not about, well, they did this and they did that, because that's probably just helping us stay in our victim mentality. There's a reward for it. We're like, if I stay in this victim mentality of, you know, the world is unjust or someone else always gets the promotion, whatever that looks like, it rewards us. Then we never have to fully show up or we never have to fully let our guard down. You know, there's for some reason we like it. So once you can address that and be honest and assume responsibility for it, dang, like I'm actually continuing. Yeah, that thing might have happened. Maybe I do need to forgive. Maybe I don't. But if I look at the here and now, I'm allowing for this to sabotage me. I'm allowing my association and my perception of it to sabotage me now versus bless and release. 
remove the human story because it's so obsolete at this point and vibe on as if the life that I want to create and the life that's coming forth for me is actually already here, which what version of me needs to exist. Like when I think about that version of me that's overcome this thing or has the perfect job or is doing their purpose work or has a beautiful relationship, how do they view this type of stuff? Did they hold on to it to get there or did they release it? Right. The other piece of this that I guess ties in that we haven't addressed is, yes, you can come at it, you know, with some level of compassion. You can see the other person was messed up. You could see, you know, maybe they were doing the best they could. But when we're looking at things through love's eyes, it, we also have to let ourselves off the hook for the times where we've dropped the ball and didn't show up as our highest self, which is sometimes even harder than forgiving the other person. Correct. Absolutely. And sometimes we call it higher and lower selves. And then we get stuck in that, too, because that creates a duality of, well, this one's good and this one's bad. And instead, they're just different. Mandy Morris, the number one most downloaded episode this year on the Life Amplified podcast. You can go back and check that full episode. Highly recommend that you do it from March 12th of this year uh, and tons of just truth bombs and all sorts of aha moments waiting for you to have. I would love to know which points resonate the most for you today. If you love this year in review, if you love these aha moments, be sure to screenshot the podcast, upload it to Twitter or Instagram, share your breakthroughs with me. You can find me at CSC Dan Mason. And if you'd like to tag any of our guests, you can find Mandy Morris at Manifest with Mandy on Instagram. Stefan Lovegrove is at Dr. Lovegrove. And you can find Sarah Riley at Sarah Riley Coaching. That is R-E-I-L-L-Y. You can also continue the conversation with me if you join our private Facebook group, the Life Amplified Power Tribe. Got a link for that for you in the show notes as well. I hope this week for you is the most magical, relaxing, blessed week. And I hope that it really springboards you into a 2020 of abundance and fulfillment and purpose and more joy. And if there's anything that I can do to help you on that journey, you know where to find me. You can always apply for any of my coaching options at my website, creativesoulcoaching.net. I do have three one-on-one spots available in the month of January for private clients. Of course, you've heard about the Wavelength group coaching program that Sarah Riley and I are hosting together. Plus, I'm going to be on the road in the month of January doing VIP days in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. New York City and right here from my home near San Diego, California. So just uh, hit me up, dan at creativesoulcoaching.net for more info on any of those options. It would be my pleasure to serve you. I am so ready to step powerfully into the roaring 20s. I hope you are too. Don't forget, turn down the volume on your negativity. Turn up the volume on your purpose so you can live life amplified. I'll talk to you next week.